going to get into things this evening. Uh, go ahead and, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is where we're going to be. Uh, we just started a brand new series called The Throne of David. And we kicked it off last week by talking specifically about relationship. If you were not here last Sunday, go back, listen to the message. Um, it was all about having relationship with God and specifically looking at the life of David and the type of relationship he had with God. Now, the reason for this series is back, in, back uh, on Easter this past year, uh, we read a passage from Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah 9, it's a, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Emmanuel. And this prophecy says that there will be a child born to a woman. And this child is going to solve all of Israel's problems. This child is going to lead Israel. And specifically, it says this child is going to reign on the throne of David. Now, if you're at all biblically literate, you know that this child is not just a random child. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. We've already read the second half of the story. We know who it is. And so we know that it's kind of an interesting thing to think about the Messiah choosing to reign on David's throne, is it not? What I would put forth to you this evening is that if I were God, if you were God, you would say, I'm reigning from my throne. This is my throne that I'm upholding. This is my throne that I'm establishing. But God doesn't say that. He says that Jesus is going to reign on David's throne. Why? David so captured God's heart that God wanted to do David's thing, not just his own thing. The life of David was so compelling so incredible that God was interested in doing what David was up to, not just simply what he was up to. If you don't believe me, go back and listen. Now, if you've been around for a while, you may have heard us say that one of our goals as a church is to build big people, not big ministry. How many of you have heard us say that before, a few of you? Big people, not big ministry. What we mean by that is that our definition of success is not a size or a number, but a quality of people who are able to enter any situation, any circumstance, and they remain secure in who they are. They know the truth about God, they know the truth about the world, and so they actually end up changing the situation, the circumstance in front of them, rather than their identity being shaken by it. This psalm is all about how to become a person like that. This was David's ability, and Psalm 16 shows us why. So here's the plan for the night. We're going to work verse by verse through Psalm 16, and then a few takeaways for you. Sound good? Awesome. Verse 1, let's read. Look down at your Bibles. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. If you know any of David's story at all, you know that his life was one marked by danger. Literally, for the first 20 years of his life, he was either fighting wild animals in the wilderness as a shepherd, or he was on the run from a king who wanted him dead. Here's kind of the general narrative. God had appointed Saul to be king over Israel, and most of you guys are probably familiar with King Saul. The people of Israel had cried out, we want a human king. We don't want to be just led by you, Yahweh. We want a human king, and so he gives them Saul. Now, through a season of disobedience, through Saul's idolatry, God ends up removing Saul and appointing David while Saul was still king. And unfortunately, while David was still working in Saul's house. So imagine this. You're the king. You're doing your thing. You think everything's going for the most part okay. And if it wasn't going so okay, you'd be like, well, show me a little bit of grace. It's a tough job. I'm the first king uh, ever, right? 
And instead of that, there's, a, there's a, a prophet who comes to you and says, no longer will you be king, but this guy who lives in your house, David, he's going to be the king. Uh-oh. So as you can imagine, things got heated. David catches wind that there won't be this peaceful dialogue. There's no dinner table chat going on with Saul. Instead, Saul goes straight to violence. He's hurling spears at David within his own house. And so David books it. He spends the next years of his life in danger, being hunted. Being hunted. So think about this. When we read this, verse 1 again, it says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. David knew what it was like to need safety. David knew what it was to need refuge. When we read this, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is God my refuge? When I need safety, when I need comfort, do I go to him? In John chapter 17, uh, the high priestly prayer, Jesus' most famous prayer, uh, Jesus says he, keep, he kept his disciples safe by the name that the Father had given him. Here's what it says. While I was with them, Jesus speaking to God, I protected them and I kept them safe by the name you gave me. Now, what the heck does that mean? How does a name keep you safe? How on earth can just, oh, I'm, Jesus, you know, or like, God the Father, Holy Spirit, like how does a name protect you, right? Well, a name can keep you safe if your last name is Obama and you need legal help while you're traveling abroad, right? It's like, whoa, hang on. My last name's actually Obama, and can I get a phone? Or, or let's say that you get pulled over, but you happen to share the same last name as the police chief. A name can protect you. Well, what is God's name, and how does it protect us? Exodus 34, verse 6, when Moses asks God, who are you? What is your name? He's asking, what do you like? And here's how he responds. And he, being God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So isn't this fascinating? God is asked, well, what's your name? And God's response is, well, a bunch of character traits. That's weird. What's your name? Well, I'm kind, I'm fun-loving, I like long walks on the beach, and uh, yeah. They're like, No, 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 but what's your name? He's like, no, that's my name. My name is Compassion. <laughs> my name is Gracious. My name is Slow to Anger. My name is Abounding in Love and Faithfulness. My name is Forgiving Wickedness. My name is Justice. That's my name. Here's what he's saying. To be protected by God's name means that you're safe because God has a history of being true to his character. So when you enter a relationship with him, he's not somebody who's volatile, he's somebody who's consistent according to his name. You're protected by the name. There's stability with him. Have you ever been around somebody who's unstable? You ever been around somebody who's volatile? Do you open up around them? Do you share your deepest and darkest secrets? Do you really get vulnerable with them? No, you don't, but you can with him. Verse two, it says this. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. David then declares that Yahweh is his Lord, or another way put, Yahweh is his king. Now, if you're thinking back to the story of Israel, this was a difficult lesson for the Israelites to learn. Remember, they wanted a human king, 
And even though, so they're, they're not saying, Yahweh, you are my king. They're saying, Yahweh, give us a king, right? And even though David becomes that king, David still lived with Yahweh as his king. He's like, all of you are crying out for a human king, but I have a king. Now, after that declaration, he adds this, verse 3, look down. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones, in whom is all my delight. So he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to you, Yahweh, you're my king. And I say about these other people around here, the holy ones of God, they are all my delight. Now, normally we don't really delight in righteous people. Like, can you really say that? Isn't that a funny, would you write that to God? You would more say like, God, I like the people around me, but I really delight in you. He's like, in all of my delight, it's in these righteous people right around here, right? If, if somebody's righteous around us, normally we just think, good for you, you're righteous, or you're righteous guy, you, like, what, what am I supposed to say? They're great, you know? I, and, and in fact, what we normally do around righteous people is we, we think that it's a reflection on how unrighteous we are, and we go, I'm not, I'm not good. I, I, I swear all the time, I do this, I do that. I, I remember when I stole that thing, I remember when I lied to my spouse there, and, and we start actually using it as a comparison, not a, an a, a opportunity to delight in what God has done in somebody's life, why? Because normally when we think of the word righteous, we think of a do-gooder, like, oh, they're just a do-gooder, and they make everybody else look horrible. But that's not what it is. Delighting in holy ones is delighting in those who are humble enough to need God. Humble enough to need God, that's what makes somebody holy. It's delighting in the work of God in their life. That's what you're delighting in. You're like, I am so amazed at what God has done in their life. I'm so amazed at how God has blessed them in this way. I'm so amazed that they had the humility to be in need. Normally, uh, in our 21st century minds, when we hear the word righteousness, we really translate it in our heads to mean self-righteousness, do we not? Which is actually, in fact, the one thing that will keep you from true righteousness. It's the first enemy against true righteousness, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness eventually turns the weapon of judgment back on you. And what you were using to see who was righteous and who wasn't in your life has actually turned back on you. Eventually, the standard that you've been using turns back to stab you with its sharpened point that you've been exercising and sharpening over time. But the way to righteousness is the humility to need Christ. Once you acknowledge him, once you acknowledge you need him, you get in him and you're made righteous. You're made righteous. So who are the righteous people that you delight in? When was the last time that you paused, you looked around, and you said, God, I'm just going to take a moment, and I'm going to thank you for these righteous people that are around me, for what you have done in their life. God, thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God, thank you that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has been deposited in these people's lives. Thank you that I no longer need to know people by the flesh or by what they've done in the past, but know them by the Spirit. Thank you, God, for these people. I just got a text from Jacob. Our worship guy today just, hey, I've been thinking about you and just thanking God for you all day long. What is that? I'm delighting in what God has done in your life and how he's brought our lives together. Now, with a new church like ours, the question that we have to continue to ask is, do I actually know the people around me? Do I know them? Do I know who I'm sitting next to? Or do I know who's behind me? Um, it's one of the main reasons why we're doing hot dogs after church. We'll have hot dogs on the grill, Saints Grill going off. And uh, get in line grab a hot dog, and get to know someone. You can't delight in them if you don't know them. I don't know who you are, but I saw like a group of people like, last Sunday, and you just walked right out, and you turned right, and I'm like, no, turn left. Turn left. Hang out. 
It's warm outside, okay? Verse four, it says this. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I feel like I just need to read that again. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their names up on my lips. So get this. He's declared, Yahweh, I say to my Lord, you are my Lord, you are my king. I delight in these holy people around me, the ones who are humble enough to know that they needed you. And I delight in them. And then he begins to turn his attention and he, and he looks at what happens to people who do not declare that Yahweh is king, who do not say that they are delighted by those who are in Christ around them. See, David understood that other gods existed, not on equal plane level with Yahweh, but there, that there exists other gods like Mammon, the god of money who Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter six. If you don't believe me, go read Matthew chapter six. And he believed that when people serve these gods and serve these gods' desires, their pain gets multiplied. Their pain gets multiplied. Have you ever seen someone who they're serving the God of money and they feel like they just never have enough and so they constantly live from a deficit? Do you know somebody like that? <laughs> Do you know somebody who they just, they live for power, they live for authority, it ends up, they feel like they never have enough and they end up trampling the people around them because of it. They're multiplying their desires because they're serving other gods. So pause for a moment. In David's mind, here's the message so far in this psalm. Pursue Yahweh as king and you get safety. Keep me safe, God, for in you I take refuge. Pursue other gods and you receive suffering that compounds, compounded interest on suffering. And then he reiterates this here in verse five. This is just such a pinnacle of this psalm. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You alone, nothing else, you alone. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. David is using inheritance language here to describe God. The king is the portion. You alone are my portion. What does that mean? What is a portion? It's a plot of land. You alone are my plot of land. You alone are my homestead. You alone are my home. You're my dwelling place. Think abode in your mind. And then what does he say? You alone are my portion and my cup. What is a cup? Why his cup? Well, do you guys remember in the garden when Jesus, he doesn't want to go to the cross and he has this one last kind of wrestle with God, if you will. I don't even know how theologically that all works within the Trinity, but he has this wrestling moment with God and he says, if it, may, if it can happen, let this cup pass from me. What is he saying? I don't want this to be my destiny. Let this destiny pass from me. Let this portion that I have pass from me. So what is my cup? Lord, you alone are my portion. You're my plot of land and you're my destiny. You are my present and you are my future. That's what he's saying right here. And I love this line, this is so good. You make my lot secure. You make this inheritance, it's secure. Now think about the security of a normal inheritance in life. There are a million ways to lose your inheritance, right? There could be a natural disaster that comes through and destroys your, your in-law's property or your parents' property or your, your uncle's property or your aunt's property, and the inheritance is gone. The house was flooded. It's over. You could have a relational falling out, and they're like, yeah, we wrote you out of the will because of that. 
Somebody could, uh, this happened to a, a very close friend of mine. Uh, the, my, my friend's father squandered all of his wealth, millions of dollars squandered, and wasn't able to pass down anything to his children. But this inheritance, this destiny, this land, it is accessible in the present and it is secure for the future. You make my lot secure. Where's your treasure? Verse 7 says this, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Verse 8, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now the concern of this passage specifically, and of this verse, is that David doesn't want to be shaken. I've seen those people, they're chasing after other gods, and what's happening to them? Their pain is multiplying on top of itself. I don't want that to be the case. So how, how do I not get shaken like that? What does it mean to be shaken? I, I, I thought back, like when somebody says, I was shook by that. I was shaken by that. What are they saying? It's to have the assumptions of truth in your life completely moved so that you lose your identity. Everything that I thought was real about this person, about that we just, oh, well, we, I shouldn't share. I'm not going to share movies, sorry. I've, no more movies. I've shared TV shows and movies from the stage before, and it's come back to bite me. <laughs> you, you hear those stories. You see those movies about people that you, they thought that they knew the person, and they turned out to be like a crazy killer of other people, right? You thought. You thought you knew them. <laughs> You're like, okay, I know what movie you saw. Okay. I'm shaken. What? No. Are you kidding me? Something so significant happens in your life that it causes you to walk away from the truth. There's many people, I've, I've watched this happen, they, they come to church and because they primarily believe church is an exchange with God. I do my penance, I hate sitting and listening to that guy in the Hawaiian shirt. I'll come and I'll sit and I'll listen to him, but it means that you have to love me. It means that you have to bless me. And then some kind of financial issue, normally, because we live in the West, financial issue comes to the house, comes upon the, the finances, and they go, I'm done with this. Why? They were shaken. Have you ever been shaken? Have you ever had something so significant happen in your life that it shook you to the core? Everything that you thought was true just came into question. Now notice his solution to this, verse eight. This is so cool. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. You don't want to be shaken? Guess what you need to do? Keep your eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In another translation, it says, I keep the Lord always before me. With him at my right hand, I will never be shaken. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that he's always looking to God's character above his own experience. Whatever's going on in my experience, it doesn't matter. I'm keeping my eyes always on the Lord. Now, if you look down at your Bibles in uh, chapter 8, it says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. And in your Bibles, it, it will be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? What does that mean? Well, what that signifies is that's the proper name for God. That's Yahweh. So what does it do? It's a hyperlink. We, we, if we were to click this online, it would take us right back to Exodus 34, verse 6, and we go, oh yeah, I keep my eyes on his compassion. I keep my eyes on his loving faithfulness. I keep my eyes on his mercy, on his justice. And what does it do? 
Because I'm doing that and I'm not keeping my eyes on everything that's going on around me, on how I'm doing in this world, on what people think about me, what does it do? It makes it so that I'm unshakable. Are you unshakable? This is the goal of creating big people. This is what we're after. It was his ability to not be shaken because of his position. Here's what I mean. Notice the spacing in this passage. I've read this a million times, and and I've always been kind of stumped by this. Verse 8, I keep my eyes always on the Lord, or another translation, the Lord is always before me. So imagine keeping your eyes on something, right? You're keeping your eyes, everybody, keep your eyes on this piano. What are you doing? You're, you're, You're squaring up, and you're looking at the piano, right? You're keeping it before you. I'm keeping that piano before me. But then he says this, with him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Wait a second. How do you keep someone before you, but they're at your right hand? Are you like, okay, I keep my eyes before me, and I'm, my eyes are focused on you, but you're kind of at my right hand, so I'm getting some peaks out of the peripheral vision over here of you. How does that work? I've been reading uh, The Three Musketeers, and in The Three Musketeers, the whole book is essentially just them going and, and fighting other people and killing them. It's like, whoa. Um, they'll be like hanging out in Paris. They'll be walking around and somebody's like, I don't like your plume out of your hat. And they're like, okay, we'll duel and I'll kill you. And you're like, okay, we have progressed. Um, But oftentimes in the Three Musketeers style of fighting, they, they go back to back. And one guy has the guys over here and the other guy has the guys over here and they're like, this guy's at my right hand. And they're just going at it. Is that what it's like? I don't think so, right? It's, it's I keep you before me, but you're at my right hand. I need my wife to come up here. Emily, come on up here. I, I remember I warned you about this. Uh, give it up for Emily. She's coming up here. H- how do you keep somebody at your right hand? The Lord is at my right hand, but he's also before me. Unless it's like this. That's it. <laughs> okay, yeah, thank you very much. That's it. That's it. You can give it up for her. What is it? It's I keep my eyes before me and you're at my right hand. That is the position of being unshakable. Is that the position of your life? The Lord is at my right hand, but he's before me. My my focus is on nothing else. That is the position of somebody who's big in the kingdom. And look at the result, verse 9. Therefore, My heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Isn't that good? When you keep that position at my right hand before me, squared up, looking in his eyes, the result is this, your heart, your emotions are aligned no matter what happens. Your tongue its contribution to the world is joy and its gratitude. And your body, it can rest. Can you sleep? Can you rest? There's an order to these. You don't get one without the other. And notice, when the heart rests, the tongue speaks life. And when the tongue speaks life, the body then rests. It is very difficult to rest when you've used your tongue to speak death all day long. Life and the power of life and death is in the tongue. And when you have spent your day speaking death over the people that you know, 
cutting their dreams down. Do you know people like that? You get around them, you tell them your dream, and they just have all the reasons why it will never work. What is it? Speaking death, I'm killing that dream. So much power in that. How many of you in the room, you've let go of dreams because somebody, when you shared it with them, they said it was stupid. They said it would never happen. They gave you all the reasons why you couldn't do it. What was it? Our words create worlds. And when we use the tongue to speak death, it has a very real and very physical effect. Married people, you know this. Try falling asleep after an unresolved fight. How's that sleep? It's the worst. Not that I've ever experienced that, but I just I can imagine. It's got to be the worst. <laughs> to end verse 11, it says this. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Presence. With eternal pleasures at your right hand. What is the unshakable life? It's the presence-based life. That's the unshakable life. You make known to me the path of life. I'm following you. Are you worried about your, are you worried about your future? Are you curious about what's going to happen? It's that face-to-face, right-hand-to-right-hand posture that keeps you on the path to life. It's so counterintuitive. You would never hike a mountain like this. Like, okay, I guess we're going to go up this trail, and it's kind of skinny, so come this way, and we'd never do that. But in, the, in, the, in the, the trail of life, the path of life, this is the way that we walk with God because he's the destination. He's the destination. Just an awesome psalm. I love Psalm 16. It's one of my favorites. But what is the main point, you ask? What is the main point? It's this. Next slide. Some chase after safety in other gods and their pain multiplies. I stay looking at Yahweh and my heart and body rest and I'm full of joy. That's the main point. Next slide, here's the key. Lordship leads to safety. I say to the Lord, you are my king. And it leads to safety. You know, safety has become um, a God in and of itself in the United States today. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys uh, read this article. This is in the New York Times. The anti-helicopter parents plea. Let kids play. And look at this caption. A Silicon Valley dad decided to test his theories about parenting by turning his yard into a playground where children can take physical risks without supervision. It just sounds like the 80s. Not all of his neighbors were thrilled. And basically, it goes on to to share this story about this New York Times contributor going to this house for a birthday party and all the kids playing in the backyard and just how nervous all the parents were like well what are they doing back there and oh did that person just hit that person and it looks like they're arguing we should go we should go break it up and there's like a trampoline and they're they're jumping off the roof and they're doing all this crazy stuff back there and the, the the theory is this I wonder if kids can solve their own conflicts I wonder if they could do it here's what here's what the author says at the end of the article he says this At the end of the party, I decided I should check out the roof. I found my son, Kieran, and we climbed out of the attic and stepped onto the roof. I spent the first few seconds evaluating the chance that someone would survive the drop remote, but then I succumbed to the heady feeling of power, of looking down on the world. Down below, I saw the play river, the fountain, and the mosaics in the driveway, and in the street, the kids kicking kicking a ball, forcing cars to make way for them. I saw the animation in the boys' slender bodies, the power of making the grown-up world momentarily bend around their will. I held Kieran's hand tightly and decided never to play there again. (laughs) 
This cultural worship of safety has spilled into the later years of life. We have many young adults who have been used to being coddled. Coddled. We have a government that now enforces self-esteem laws. It finds its primary job is to make sure that everybody feels good about themselves. We have literally created safe spaces on campuses to shield people from ever having to see a view that might be against their view. Now, as you can tell, I got a critique on safe spaces, but I don't have time for it tonight. What I want to say is this, though. The church wasn't meant to be a safe space. The church wasn't meant to be a safe space. (laughs) It was originally intended to raise up people who were fed to wild animals, crucified upside down, and sang while they were being burned. Safe space? Hmm. We are training saints for the kingdom, not a comfortable life. When you chase safety... You throw out adventure. When you chase God, you get both. There is is a safe place for all Christians, just like David says, and it's Yahweh. That's our safe place. I found this description of a safe space super helpful. This is a, a woman from her book, Mapping Gay LA, talking about homosexuality in the 1960s in Los Angeles. She says this, with anti-sodomy laws still in effect, a safe space meant somewhere you could be out and in good company, at least until the cops showed up. Gay bars were not safe in the sense of being risk, free from risk, nor were they safe as in reserved. A safe place was where people could find practical resistance to political and social repression. Everybody has a need to just be able to be themselves somewhere without having to do that translation, and without having to always be on guard to justify yourself. Now, I don't mean this as a political moment, but I just thought this was a great definition of safety. Think about it. Christians don't have a safe space. The instant that we try to make this a safe space is the instant we become a church that exists for itself. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the people out there. That's why we exist. We're here to serve. But get this, if God is your safe space, then he's the place where you find practical resistance to political and social repression. We live in a culture that doesn't like Christians. I tell you, nine times out of 10, conversations I have with somebody on the street and I let them know that I'm a pastor, their first response is revulsion. Why? Christians have existed for themselves for too long And we have not let, I remembered, I think it's Chesterton who's asked, how do you share the gospel? And he said, I let it out of a cage like a roaring lion. When we've said, oh, but it's actually more of a kitty, and um, we actually hang out with it in this room (laughs) only. God is the place where you don't have to be on guard and you don't have to justify yourself because he's already done it for you. He's your safe space. But there's a catch. When we make safety the primary pursuit in the church, we will often sacrifice discipleship and the challenging things of God for safety. We will begin to read the scriptures with a hermeneutic that tries to put distance between us and the text so that there might, be, there might not be any demand on our lives. This is the primary issue that I'm watching with my generation. 
is that they just don't buy that the text is actually authoritative and tells us the truth that leads to freedom. Yes, it's ancient. Yes, there's questions. Yes, it's difficult to read. Yes, it's hard to reconcile, but it has the truth in it that leads to freedom. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and either he's that or he's not at all. You don't get it both ways. Discipleship is risky because discipleship is saying, not my will, but your will be done, and your will may conflict with my will. (laughs) David is saying there's no safety without lordship, and the New Testament is a witness that there's no lordship without discipleship. You want safety? You gotta become a disciple. He's gonna lead you on the path to life, but that's just it. He will lead you. I wanna go back, flip over to uh, chapter 16 just one more time. Look down at your Bibles, verse four. I wanna read this again. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on Yahweh. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What is that? What is that? That's a description of the cost of non-discipleship contrasted with the fruition of discipleship. The cost of non-discipleship, pain multiplied, contrasted with the fruition of discipleship. You alone are my portion and my cup. One of the things that marked David's life was discipleship with the king, and this is where we're going to end. David spent his 20s in the wilderness as a fugitive. What did safety look like for him? Safety looked like him turning the wilderness into an encounter, turning a time of pain and difficulty into closeness with God. And many of us have been there. Oftentimes, the darkest times in our lives become a wealth of non-circumstantial joy because of God. Have you ever been there? You thought it was just the worst time in your life, but now you look back on it and you go, but he met me there, and I see him there, and he did that, and he did this. Eugene Peterson, he says this, Expect the worst in the wilderness and the unexpected best in the wilderness. How many of you can look back on your life and you're like, yeah, that was the worst, but there was this unexpected best. It's in these times of wilderness, these times of intense discipleship, where we haven't rejected the journey for the sake of safety, where some of the greatest strides are made in the Christian life. The Bible talks about these process seasons all over the place. Isaiah 49 verse two says this. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow. There are seasons where God actually pulls you back from what you had been involved in. you, You stop serving, you stop hanging out with that group of people. He pulls you back and he's like, no, I'm just polishing you right now. I'm preparing you so that I can release you and I can hit a target that I wouldn't be able to hit if I didn't have this time to polish you, to knock off the rough edges, to shine you up so that you actually get glorified. Have you ever been in that season? Matthew 7, here's another. Enter through the narrow gate For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. 
But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Have you been in a season where you're like, it's, this is so easy, I would so much rather go this way and there's just a tap on your shoulder and you think, but maybe that's actually not the road of discipleship. Maybe it's this one. And this is a tiny wandering path with an edge on that side and this side, but I'm gonna stay on this. Have you ever been in that season? It forms your character. Turn over in your Bibles, if you will, to the right to John chapter 15, just a very famous passage on discipleship. I wanna share a little bit just from my heart and from my life uh, this evening. I've I've alluded to this uh, a couple different times, but I just kind of wanna uh, open up a little bit to you guys. It says this in John 15, verse one. Jesus speaking to his disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. God rewards all growth with pruning. The trajectory of our lives is this. We grow in Christ. We get cut. We grow in Christ. We get cut. We grow in Christ. We get cut. And we produce fruit. My mother-in-law, sorry to call you out, but I I won't point you out. My mother-in-law at her old house had these grapevines, and there was like a fence that she had built, and these grapevines grew all over them, and she just liked how pretty the leaves were and whatnot. They weren't for producing fruit or anything. But they would grow and grow and grow. They would like take over a whole section of the backyard. They would just get huge. And I, would, I went one time, and I looked at them to see, well, is there, are there, is there any fruit? I looked under there and I was like, I don't see see any grapes. I thought these were grapevines. Yeah, this is a grape leaf. And I I got under there and I was looking around. I was like, okay, maybe that's like a little cluster that's all dried up, but there's, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. Why? I don't know if you know this, but vines, grapevines, when they don't get cut, they will eventually extend themselves beyond their own ability to be fruitful. And so they spend all of their energy growing bigger and longer and wider rather than taking that energy and concentrating it on producing fruit. So then you just have a big show, a lot of leaves and no grapes. Think about the metaphor. When vines don't get cut, they grow and they grow to the point where they don't produce fruit. Christians do the same thing. When we don't get cut, when we don't submit to the gardener, we get louder and larger, but we produce less and less fruit if we don't submit ourselves over to the gardener and say, you gotta cut me here, Lord. This is brought up in my life. I need to be cut right there. Recently, I've been in this pretty intense season of discipleship, and uh, it's honestly a little bit new. It feels uh, like it's been a while since I really got cut multiple times. Um, the Lord has just been bringing to the surface. He started by just saying, Alex, I want you to go and I want you to name all of your fears. I want you to name all of the things that you're afraid of. And so I started just listing out all the things that I'm afraid of and at the core root of each of these fears, um, there, there was uh, some belief that I had. I believe that if this doesn't happen in my life, I'll never be worth it. I believe if this person thinks this of me, uh, I, I'm gonna be a failure forever. I believe that if, if I don't achieve this thing, I, I'm like a total achiever, so if I don't achieve this thing, then I'm totally worthless. 
And as I began to identify these things with each of them, there was a character issue that started coming to the surface. And it was just, I've been waking up early each morning, and the Lord has just been like, okay, it's time to cut you right there. So I've been getting up, and I've been writing in my journal just what my daily honesty is. Just saying, honestly, here's how I feel today. Here's what I'm thinking today. Here's what I'm afraid of today. Just uh, no filter. Here's, here's what it is. And what I'm doing with each of those is I'm saying, yeah, Lord, this branch right here, this needs to be cut. Because this belief, this way of thinking doesn't belong on the vine. And in fact, if I continue to grow in this direction, I will actually make self-promotion and what people think about me more important than producing the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And it's been painful. I don't think I've had a season like this for a long time of just going, wow, I didn't even know that this was there. Why? It's being brought to the surface so that I can notice it and bring it to him. The other night I'm talking to my wife in our kitchen and I'm just, I just was explaining all this to her. I'm saying, I'm just so like tired of this. I can't, have you ever gone to that point where you're just sick and tired of yourself? It's like, I'm just tired of you. Everything that you do is for yourself. You're so selfish. And, you, and I just got in this place where I'm just like, I am like, I can't even live with myself anymore. I'm so sick of it. And I was very discouraged. And I went to my wife and I just was telling her about all this stuff. And she's like, well, you know, you always say, oh. <laughs> this is what happens when you speak about the Bible for a living. She's like, well, you know, you always say that the Lord doesn't bring things up in our lives to shame us. He brings things up in our lives to prune us so that we can get victory in those areas. So whenever something's, when we're in that discipleship with him, when we've made him Lord and we say, I say to you, Lord, you are my king and you are my safety. And he says, okay, but right here, we're gonna need to cut that. It's not a time for me to go, I can't believe that's there. I'm so sorry, Lord, I am horrible. It's a time for me to go, yes, I'm about to get victory in this place. Yes, I'm about to get victory in that place. So when the king brings that thing to the surface. Here's what I have to think. Next slide. I'm safe to be led by this king. With his kingdom comes discipleship. I am getting cut for my victory and his glory. So my focus isn't then to shy away from getting cut like a little kid getting their hair cut. Have you ever seen that? Like, no, don't cut my hair. It's gonna hurt me. It's gonna hurt me. It's like, no, no, cut me because that's where I'm about to step into a greater level of victory, a greater level of unshakability than I've ever had before. Will you let him cut you? One of the reasons why we chose the photo for this series, and I think we have it up here, one of the reasons why we chose that photo is because of this psalm. You notice there's uh, some birds kind of flying overhead. Psalm 55 is an important psalm to me. It says this, Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far, from the, far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter. David is saying, if only I had my own wings, I could escape this situation, right? If only I had my own ability to get out of the situation, I would. Notice his tone change by Psalm 91. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and Rampart, in Psalm 55, he's like, I wish I had my own wings. In Psalm 91, he's like, I've experienced his, and let me tell you, you want his. You want his. What is it? It's a refusal to save yourself. A, a, a holding out for him to save you. A holding out for him to cut you. A holding out for, uh, for him to cover you with his wings and to disciple you. 
How much growth in your life is on the other side of getting cut? Staying in the season, not trying to escape, going through the process, that's what makes you unshakable. That's what makes you able to say, I say to the, my Lord, you are my Lord, you are my refuge. So let me just ask you this as we end. We can all stand together. I want to ask you this. What is the process that you're in this evening? We talk a lot at St. Hill about breakthrough. We love the moment where God comes in and everything changes in a moment. We love it. What's the process that you're in tonight? What's the process like?